Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I would like to call in the spirits to be with us here today. I'd like to call into the ancestors. I'd like us to remember that all of us, no matter where we are from on this planet, if we reach back far enough, we have ancestors who lived in shamanic ways. I'd like to call in these ancestors who understood initiation, ancestors who lived well and died well and have the richness of our legacy and our inheritance there for us, should we choose only to listen, to open our hearts to them, to communicate with them, to invite them into our lives, and ask them to help us to learn from those who have gone before us, that we might allow them to hold the remembering so that we may go forward differently, that we may heal, we may change, and we may create the world that we are dreaming of. So I call out to these ancestors to be with us here today and circle round to hold us in a good way that we might go forward in a way that is good for all living things. I call out to the earth below that ancient ancestor, and I thank her for the wonder of her dreaming that brought life to this planet. And may we remember as we go through our day that life as we understand it is a miracle. And may we live in a way that expresses that miracle in some small way or some large way. Let us give thanks for the beauty around us in this day, Thanks for the interconnectedness, for the place, the home, and for the place to belong and to be one with others, other humans, other animals, other plants, the elementals, and all that makes this world what it is. We give thanks for this dreaming and for our opportunity to be part of it. May we enrich this world in a good way. And with our feet firmly planted and the ancestors gathered round, may we reach up to the sky and call down from the highest power of the universe by whatever name you call it. May we call this energy down into the center of our proceedings to bring us blessings and inspiration and generosity and benevolence of our universe. And may we call it down around us that we are protected as we go forward, that we may risk hearing something we've never heard before, speaking something we've never said before, and allowing things that have never quite happened before to happen in this way. So with the earth and the sky together within ourselves and within our circle, I call out to the energy of the heart to be with us here today. And may the heart do what it is designed to do, to draw up the passions from each of our bellies and draw down the wisdom of our mind and the clarity and the creativity that we might craft with our life the gift that we have to give. And may we go forward today in a way that offers that gift to the world. So with the spirit help gathered round, may these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things in all times. So I also want to give thanks to those of you who are donating to this show. For those of you who haven't found it yet, there is a website, whyshamanismnow.com. And you can simply push the donate or the support button and offer even a dollar. Every single little bit helps us to keep the show available to people all over the world as a way to connect and learn about shamanism. So we give thanks to all of you who have donated and all of you who will. And without further ado, I want to give great thanks and gratitude to our guest today, Michael Dunning. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. 
Thank you, Christina. It's a pleasure being here. So welcome to the show. Michael um, is one of four guests on our series of looking into the initiatory experiences of shamans, assuming that since they're practicing as shamans, their initiatory experiences have transformed them into that so that we can start to understand or remember what a true initiation is, that we might begin to bring these into our culture and help people to move in a meaningful way from childhood to adulthood and in that way perhaps bring some healing to some of the more pervasive cultural sicknesses of our time. So this is our hypothesis for the series, and Michael's joining us here today to share um, really a beautiful and amazing story of his initiation. I don't even want to go through all of the information because I want to get right at it. We'll come back to that at the end. Um, just, just so you know, Michael is, uh, was born in Scotland and immigrated to the U.S., and um, there's a, there are a couple things that Michael offers, but I think that talking about them will probably make more sense at the end than the beginning. So just what I'm going to do, Michael, is just make sure that I give us time at the end to go through your website and all of that. But for now, um, let's go right into the heart of the matter. Um, what I usually do with a new guest is ask, you know, what are those pivotal, pivotal moments that made you who you are today? But since that's what the whole show is about, um, I'm going to start by just asking you, to share with listeners more what a normal day would be like in your shamanic practice. Mostly because I think it's funny to ask for a normal shamanic practice day. But anyway, um, because partly it helps listeners kind of get a sense of you and your work, but also to realize how different we all are as practitioners. Um, so what's an imaginary sort of normal day like for you as a, as a practitioner? A normal day for me... Um... Well, it would, it would, the normal day would, would begin uh, reasonably early, not too early, reasonably early. And I would, um, I have a, um, two places where I, where I practice. I have a more conventional space, which is right on the banks of the Connecticut River here um, in, uh, in western Massachusetts, and a very beautiful little space where I will work mostly with um, Within, within a, the biodynamic craniosacral context, although a little later I'd like to, to kind of draw some parallels of, with, with that to shamanism. Um, so I may see some clients there and work in the mornings there. And I live up in the countryside, quite up in this beautiful space with some land. And I have a, uh, a treatment space up here and a space in my house where I can work more, let's say, a little more freely with... Um, a little more of a shamanic approach. So in a day, I may go between the two spaces and work with people um, in my office near the river, or I'll come up into the woods and work with people more shamanically in my in my house. Lovely. So that that would be the that would be a that would be a, a typical day for me. Um, it's pretty much my full time profession. So Michael, <laughs> this is a really big answer, I know. But how did you get from being a bass player in Scotland to, <laughs> to this practitioner who is offering, you know, not just these, your own unique healing forms, but this whole exploration into you shamanism? So, so what happened? I mean, how did you get here? 
Yeah, that's a that's a, a long story that I will I will I will keep re- relatively short and uh, refer later anybody who's interested to some pieces of literature that they can they, they can uh, look at more detail. But um, essentially, um, the, the the key thing for me I think was was really um, early on um, in my teens feeling beginnings to beginning to feel really like a sort of malaise, um, like a lot of teenagers do, a lot of people do. They come into this place of growth and change and transformation, and, and there's, not, there's no guidance to that. And, and it's, a, it's a, probably a big potentially component to what you're looking at in, in, in the show and to, you know, who do we look for when we're going through these transformational times in our lives. And um, for me, it was a little more, I felt, quite a bit of sickness uh, coming on. And um, I ended up a little later in the art school in Edinburgh, Edinburgh College of Art, which was a very, very pivotal experience for me, was to be, was to be thrust into this uh, world of art school and charismatic characters and colourful characters and this whole post-punk epoch of a uh, very, very interesting, exciting time. And it was kind of fashionable to look fairly emaciated and kind of gaunt, and I, I fitted in pretty well <laughs> to that picture uh, because my health wasn't so great. But to me, it just seemed like I was on the edge, you know, I was living on the edge, and I was, I'm going to be, I'm an artist, I'm going to explore this creative universe and just, you know, be out there on this on this edge. So art college ended, and I still wasn't really feeling any better. In fact, I was beginning to feel a little worse. And uh, um, so, I'm just jumping ahead a little bit, I, um, like most art students, when you leave art school, you, you really aren't prepared for the world. I mean, nobody prepares you for interfacing as a naive art student with, <laughs> with the kind of mechanism of, of Western culture where you have to make money and pay bills and things like that. So, you know, many of us were looking around for things to do. And we ended up, um, a few friends of mine, interestingly, my, one of my friends, Ewan, and that Ewan means you tree, and you'll see, your mm. listeners will see soon how, how, much, uh, how many connections there, there are to this, to this amazing tree. So I, um, he suggested to me that you know, there was a, a job planting trees, believe it or not, in the north of Scotland. So off we went to the very, this northern part of Scotland, very, very denuded land next to a nuclear reprocessing centre, which is now decommissioned. And um, it was near a place called Thurzo, which for your listeners means um, Thor's River. Um, it's a very powerful place and very strong connections with the, with the Nordic, uh, Nordic traditions. And... Um, so there we were in this place planting trees, and it was um, during that time in this very denuded land, in this place which was quite far from any 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 civilization really, that I had uh, my first major encounter with um, what I would regard as a sometimes I call it an elemental spirit, sometimes I don't know what to call it, um, but it's something that basically came into my came into my um, my my world in a very dramatic way, and. Um, pretty much almost killed me. Um, and that was really the first, the first um, I would say, looking back, one looks back and interprets. And look, looking back, I would say that was the mark the first part of my initiation. Where, um, And would you like me to go into a little detail about what exactly happened? Sure. Um, there was a very um, dark place there. Um, we were planting trees in the middle of nowhere in a little caravan, little trailer, I suppose you would call it here, and um, we had no light, no heating, no toilet, no water. It was a very, very primitive place. And one night I was 
pulled awake by this horrendous feeling in my body of um, this horrible choking sensation and pressure, incredible, incredible compression on my body, almost like the compression was permeating all my cells on my body. It was an awful, awful feeling. And a, and a sort of rank, horrible, rank, foul smell and taste in the air, like the whole air had become viscous, almost like a fluid and thick and heavy. And I realized that I couldn't breathe. I was choking. I thought I was choking to death. And I was clutching at my throat, thrashing around in my sleeping bag, trying to get out to get free, not knowing in my half-awake state what was going on. So I kind of fell to the floor and managed to get out of my sleeping bag and clutching my throat was just racing around the caravan in the dark, bumping into things, just in a state of absolute panic. What was going on? I had no reference for this. Nothing like this had ever happened to me before. It was like being underwater, but yet able to move around um, without the pressure. But there was still an enormous pressure on my body. And, and I began to realize that this viscous, rank sort of fluid, let's, let's call it, was actually entering my body through my nostrils and actually through my mouth. So every time I went to breathe in, I was inhaling an acrid substance, not unlike um, the smell of sort of, it was like a brimstone, a burning sort of fiery, like burning human hair or burning plastic, a terrible, awful uh, smell. And I began to realize that I could actually breathe this in and, and actually function to some extent. Um, and I then realized that there was a presence. And I've always, I'd always been very, very sensitive ever since I was a child, but I had kind of locked that down a little bit over my life. Um, and I began to sense this incredibly enormous presence outside of the caravan, kind of crushing in on the walls of the caravan and crushing in on me. And it felt like something that was beyond imagination in terms of power, something that you instinctively know can, can, can bring your existence to a complete stop any time. There's just a sense of this is serious. This is really, this is, could be the end. And it's amazing how instinct, your instinctual self takes over. And these thoughts will kind of abstractly, you know, become a cellular thoughts. Your body almost is preparing instantaneously for death. It's incredible how that happens. And um, so I thought to myself, you know, well, there's something out there. And something in me pushed me to the, the door of the caravan. I needed to face what this was. It was almost like there was no, there was no option in a sense but to go out and face this thing. And um, I pulled the door. The door wasn't even attached to this caravan. And I kind of pulled it to the side and stared into the blackness. And there was just this sense of the atmosphere being breathed like a heaving and a sort of expansion and a contraction like a heaving of the very environment around the caravan it was quite extraordinary and this movement was being sort of echoed in my own body and myself like a contraction and expansion almost in rhythm with this environmental this kind of atmospheric breathing outside but it had a center and the center was this intelligence this presence and the presence was watching me. It was in control of my body. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was me to some extent. It was breathing me to some extent. And I realized that this, that this was the end. I was no turning back from this point. And it, there was a moment of silence where this, this, let's just call it this elemental spirit, 
coiled back like a serpent, you know, like gathering its energy into a kind of stillness, ready to, ready to kind of whiplash itself for a final strike. But as it pulled back and went into this kind of stillness, there was a, there was a, a the pause kind of prolonged, and then there was an enormous pop, massive kind of popping sound in the atmosphere, and it was gone. Mm. And I collapsed to the ground, sobbing um, and absolutely um, exhausted beyond anything I felt, and um, sort of crawled my way back to the into the sleeping bag and um, was just emotionally totally um, fraught and woke up the next morning. I'd actually sleep a little. I was so exhausted. Nobody in my friend Ewan, there was a couple of other people in other caravans, nobody had had experienced anything like this. Everything was apparently normal. I even looked Mm. for footprints to think my rational mind started operating, you know, there must have been something out there. It was an animal. There was something. There was nothing, no footprints. There was no evidence of anything on our physical plane. Um, and my health began to deteriorate from that point, uh, mm-hmm. very slowly mm-hmm. from that point. Um, so it, it, at that moment, like in the door of the caravan, looking out now in reflection, I'm sure at the time, I can't even imagine being conscious of anything more than the moment, but looking back, when you recognized, I mean, you recognized there was an intelligence, there was a center to this presence, that there was a, a being, I don't yeah. know, for lack of a better word. I mean, English becomes problematic with these things. We don't have very good words for this stuff. <laughs> you know, but, but, but there was a, a, an acknowledge. sounds like there was an acknowledgement of this being and its scope, its capacity relative to your own. And there, there's a, it sounds to me like there was a lot of humility in that. You know, recognizing basically that I'm, you know, this, this energy could squish me like a bug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, quite literally, absolutely. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right. I think there was a communication took place too where there was actually a, there was actually a, a, almost like this, as you say, this being or this entity was 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 um, scanning me or, or very aware of me. And there was a very specific reason for it being there, it felt. It wasn't a random, this was not a random occurrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was There was a definite purpose to this to this meet to this communication to this meeting that was that was involving me um you know understanding comprehending i think that that that, that there was a moment of potential non-existence yeah or i was on it i was on this it was a extraordinarily there was a transrational completely transrational period of 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 suspended time and, and a sense of just a threshold that was presented to me that was so maybe in a way, when I think back, I wonder if there was something about my communication. There was an element of choice there, you know, choosing to remain or choosing to be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that well, or even just your own ability as a contemporary person to recognize the reality of the situation, the, extra- the extraordinary reality of the situation, versus panicking. Uh, I mean, not that you did panic, but you know. Versus a denial, an arrogance. I mean, there were a lot of ways one could respond, but it sounds like for you, your cells kind of took over. Yes, no, I like I like the way you're drawing that out. I think that uh, what what you're saying is that there was there was maybe the choice was around what how one reacts, and if, if one was to kick and scream and resist and try to fight back and assert one's ego, 
assert one's individuality and assert one's identity, then there would have been no survival to that. Yeah, but in many it would ways, have been squished like a bug. <laughs> it would have been, yes. And I think, I think what you're getting at, in a sense, is the whole notion of the dissolution of the yeah. ego, the dissolution of the personality and the dissolution of the self, which is really, I think, essentially what happened in a, in a, in a, in a, a blink of an eye to some extent. You know? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you were willing to get it, you know, in that moment and not fight with it. Yeah, you know, which is extraordinary for contemporary people because we're really trained not to do that. So, yes, we're trained to fear death tremendously. We don't have rituals of of, we don't have rituals of beginnings and we don't have rituals of endings. And and I think that uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's a really critical point where where um, at that point I had no fear of death. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't it wasn't within my mental construct. It wasn't an emotional state. There was no, there was no such thing at that point as that you could describe as as a fear of annihilation. It was, it was a quality of acceptance to that. Definitely. Well, and it sounds to me like so much so that when the pop happened and it went away, you were surprised. I was surprised to still be alive. Yeah, yeah. I, I was extremely surprised <laughs> to, to be given this. Yeah. You know, to to wake up the next day and to send, be very very fragile, but to be alive, it was quite an amazing experience to be um, to be alive. After that, absolutely. Well, and then some people might say, well, yeah, but then you, your health deteriorated. You know, but we, you know, part of what's coming out of these conversations about initiation is that, you know, there is a dynamic in a real initiate, a, a real, a meaningful, a transformative initiation that involves this um, illness. And it may be different for everybody, but, but illness isn't always a bad sign, I guess. But anyway, so let's go. So we go on with your story. So this happens. Everyone thinks you're crazy, and then your health begins to deteriorate. Yes, my health began to deteriorate, and and uh, you know I was um, from that point. It, it became increasingly more difficult to to uh, manage myself on a daily basis. I was beginning to notice that. My perception was beginning to become kind of divided or split in a way that I was almost, part of me was almost beginning to seep into another kind of reality that was very, not, not at all conducive with a, with, a, with a kind of temporal linear sequence mm-hmm. of, of, of time. And, and it was becoming very difficult to manage. Um, I lost my balance, my orientation completely. So I couldn't, my depth perception was completely altered. I couldn't actually tell um, how far an object was in front of me very clearly. And also, if I was in a room, I, I could not tell you how what size the room was, what its dimensions were, because it, in the back of my head was open, and it felt as though that there was a space behind me that was so, so incredibly vast that I could have just fallen back into it forever. So mm-hmm. it was almost impossible to gain any orientation to, to, to the, the space that we're, that we're given here in this particular mode of existence. So, so actually, you know, I, yeah, I think people really take our our sort of ordinary connection to that space time grid way for granted. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and it's been pointed out by so many people that that I mean anomalies are continuously there. I mean, Carl Jung pointed it out all the time, and we see it now much more in in, in the way that science is beginning to touch on on these subjects, and uh, it's getting harder to ignore that our. our uh, our reality is, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a lot more than, than, than what we uh, than what we perceive with our with our faculty of uh, yeah. limited senses, as we as, as as you and I both know very well. 
Um, okay, so so things are getting harder and harder to manage. Realities are 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 sounds like they're sort of bleeding into each other. Yeah, and exactly. then and then your friend rescues you, unknowing. Sounds yes, like. yes. I was I was um, very very um. There was another one tight, small piece bit before that where I was mm-hmm. I was struck in the head by what appeared to be a kind of a form of of lightning, but it was more like a light. Uh, and that that was the, the probably the, the the event that that shook me the most, um, where I was really uh, my 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 muscle mass after that began to began to deteriorate. So wow. I, so there's a, a few years between these two events, mm-hmm. um, and uh, shortly thereafter. Now, did um, this just happen like while you're at the grocery store or something? Strangely enough, you know, this is going to be, this is almost funny, but that um, in Scotland, you know. One of the things I think that it's important to, 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 to try is that, is that, you know, initiation happens in, 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 in the real world around people doing their normal thing. And uh, you can be having this altered reality around just this kind of world that's just ticking along and things are going on. And I was doing my best to have a kind of normal existence. And uh, in Scotland, there's, you know, I was out a lot. You know, I was trying my best to, to, to maintain. So I was in a bar. And it was called the Green Tree, <laughs> and it's so corny in a way, but it's it's incredibly, uh, you know, it's it's absolutely the way it happened. And it, the, the Green Tree no longer exists. It was in this older part of Edinburgh, very very um, intense part of Edinburgh, city of Edinburgh actually. And I kept looking into the corner of this uh, of, of the bar the whole the whole night, and my friends were asking, "Are you are you all right? Are you you, you okay? You seem very very anxious." And I said, "No, oh, I'm all right. I'm all right." And, and just probably this went on for some time, and I sort of looked at one point, and there was a like a flash came just basically out of nowhere and struck me in the left hand side of my head, just near the front front of my head, and I was knocked from my chair and uh, wow. had to be helped up by a friend, and I said, "You need to get me home," and she got me home. I couldn't walk. I mean, walk a couple of steps. I have to stop and walk. And uh, from then, I was I was kind of a an absolute um, wreck from from that point on until I met this person who you've just referred to, who realised I was really struggling and and um, um, brought me with her to her um, little cottage in the southeast um, coast of of Scotland. And it was there that my my healing began to began to, uh, the other side of the story began to emerge, was the, the transformational healing aspect of, of the story. Now, uh, just one question. In, you know, in the U.S., at this point, your friends would have been trying to commit you. Now, does that same thing happen in Scotland, or did they just sort of let you do your thing? Well, um, you know, I, a lot of friends were very concerned, and I kept myself, I mean, I've always had hermetic kind of tendencies to be a hermit, so I kept myself very away, I, I limited my social contact as much as I possibly could. It was so exhausting to have any contact. So a lot of people didn't really get a chance to see exactly how I was feeling, mm-hmm. including, my, including my family. I mean, I kept away from my family mm-hmm. and I minimized any contact with anybody who was... So, so really, this particular person who got to know me was the person who'd first really seen the extent of what was going on for me. But the ironic thing to this is I worked in a non-profit with adults with mental illness, which I did for 14 years, um, in an arts program. So I was very used to seeing and being in psychiatric hospitals and seeing the 
extent of that. So there was a part of me that thought, oh my goodness, you know, I'm I'm living in, in this kind of place which is so often pathologized and, you know, people are put on medication and I'm kind of, I'm a perfect candidate here, you know. <laughs> and there I was wandering around Victorian psychiatric hospitals in a state that was probably in some ways way worse than half the people in there. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it was quite a, it was a very, very odd um, it was a very, very odd juxtaposition, that. <laughs> well, I have a question, though. So while you were in this state, I mean, it was obviously the state that you were in, and, and until the next stage of the story, you couldn't actually get yourself out of. But mm-hmm. were you aware that your reality wasn't everybody's reality? Yes, yes. I mean, I think I mean, my training as an art student and my sensitivity, my level of sensitivity anyway, I realized that, there was something really altered going on. And I knew that instinctively, I knew that it, it, what, that I, it was a, there was a part that could, I could have fallen into a pathologizing of it, like I'm, I'm dying, I have cancer, mm-hmm. I have this, I have that. And actually, I did end up going to hospital and had multiple um, tests run on me. And they could, the, the, the doctors were absolutely perplexed and there was nothing showed up at all. Mm-hmm. And yet... Mm-hmm. They weighed me five or six times. They kept, they kept weighing me and saying, you cannot be this light. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. It's not. And they kept ch- adjusting the scales and putting me on and running tests again, checking mm-hmm. my blood again. Um, so, so, you know, I did, go to, I did go down that route to try and see if there mm-hmm. was something and there, nothing showed up. Um, yeah. So that just confirmed to me that there was something other going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things, because I, you know, there's a little bit, at least in the States, the sort of new age idea that every mental illness is a shamanic initiation, (laughs) (laughs) which is clearly not the case. Um, But that to me is part of the distinction is that I know for myself, while I was in the midst of that altered state, I was pretty clear I couldn't get myself out or I was trying to get myself out and failing. But Mm -hmm. I was very aware that it wasn't everybody else's reality. Whereas when I've been with people that have another kind of, you know, intense state going on, they're pretty sure their reality is reality. And you know, there's not that sort of dual awareness always. And I think, anyway. Yeah, that's a really, that's a very, very important point. I think that possibly my, my training and my work with, with adults and mental illness helped me to see that as well, is that, you know, that that wasn't what I was experiencing. I wasn't experiencing the conviction that my reality was the only reality, say you would find in bipolar disorder, um, that that, that wasn't happening for me. So, so I think there was a dual consciousness going on, which, is a, which, which as, we, as we know, is, is, is a, a skill that must be cultivated in, mm-hmm. in, in shamanic work. And it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a way of having a divided attention, in a sense. Right, if you survive the early phase where it's scaring the crap out of you. <laughs> <laughs> if you make it, yeah, then you... Yeah. Yeah, and then, and, I, and again, it, it takes, as we know, it takes a lot of work to, to stabilize these experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that's, 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 the, that's a critical, um, I'm sure, that's something that you, you um, are exploring in, in, in your interviews. Yeah. Okay, so let's get on to the tree. On to the tree. On um, the tree. And this is where a lot of people find it very difficult to, to, to kind of stay with me, even after all of the talks and uh, workshops I've, I've now given on this. But um, there I was in, in, uh, in, um, in this little part of Scotland near Edinburgh um, by the sea. And again, the tree theme comes up here again. It's actually quite funny, so I should maybe just tell this, this little aspect of the story. 
the person I was living with, she said to me, look, you know, you're, maybe you should, you know, maybe you should, you know, meet some people and get out for a little bit and see if you can, you know, enjoy yourself for an evening. And I said, oh, I don't really want to do that. And she said, you know, I have a tree surgeon friend and, you know, he's, you know, maybe he can take you to the pub, you know, so, so him and I went off to this, to this, to this local bar and after many hours, <laughs> he said to me, um, he started talking about the yew tree and I said, mm. a what, what tree? And he said, you don't know what a yew tree is? I said, I have absolutely no clue what a yew tree is. The next thing, he had me bundled in his car, and he was in no state to, to, to operate a vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, off we went up these windy, windy roads with high hedges that are extremely disorienting to drive on in any case, zooming around up, and, you know, up on grass verges. And I thought, where is he taking me? Why am I letting this happen? You know, I'm not feeling well. I want to go home. And we got to the end, outskirts of this kind of um, big walled garden, what looked like a big walled garden, big private land. And we popped over the wall and, um, well, I kind of scrambled over the wall and we started going through all these broken, all these branches and bushes and falling and it was pitch black. It's like, oh my goodness. And then we shoot, we brings me to what appears to be an enormous, enormous, enormous bush, just a big bush. And I, I'm thinking, okay, this is now getting kind of scary. I don't know what's going on here. He said, okay, on you go. In you go. And there was a black hole in this bush, this entrance to this, to this chamber. So I began to navigate this dark, dark tunnel of, of what appeared to be branches all around, just jagging into you if you veered off this linear path up through this tunnel. This tunnel was probably 40 feet long. You, could, you had to bend down to get through it. And coming up a slope into this, what really appeared to be in the, in the dark was, was a little bit of moonlight that night, was a chamber of sorts. And I began to see that the trunk of the tree was in the center and that this tree was growing out from about 12 feet, 15 feet from its trunk, out in these sweeping graceful arcs into the air and back down into the ground and creating a almost perfect um, enclosed cavern of of living wood, and this was the yew tree. This was the, my first introduction to this, basically this um, female ancient ancient yew tree. Um, that very quickly I realised I was in the presence of something quite divine and quite something I'd never encountered before. Um, as equally as powerful as the as the spirit that had. Um, in a sense, give me the choice of life or death, but this was much more of a harmonized atmosphere, something that felt like you could really just be immersed in. Um, and so that was my introduction to the to the um, this great uh, this great um, living sentient being. And these trees, we don't have them here in North America, do we? You do. Um, you don't have the same. Kind. I mean, there are. There's a Pacific yew tree, and they're they're they're, they're they are quite um, they're quite powerful and dramatic old trees. And the Native Americans knew how to use them for medicine. Um, they were very mm-hmm. well versed in the, in the yew trees magic. But the um, the trees were endangered. They still are endangered to some extent. And it was only the I think it was it was an, the plight of an owl that actually brought them from extinction. Now, of mm-hmm. course, they are they're a cure for cancer. 
And mm-hmm. um, this is a whole other aspect of the yew tree's power. It's actual it's curative um, healing powers are now known by science as, and, um, and um, under the name of Taxol or Paclitaxol, which is mm-hmm. the chemical compound from the bark, which is used to cure certain forms of cancer now with some good results, in fact. Well, it's really hard to imagine this tree without seeing these pictures. It's it's astounding. It is as astounding in its in the way it extends out and creates this internal space out and then back down to the earth as the redwood trees are in their verticality. I mean, absolutely. it's they are absolutely uh, unbelievable. I mean, yes. I, I, you know, we have big trees here, but they're but they're different. You know, the cedars, these ancient old growth cedars and redwoods and Douglas firs and things out here, they're you know, they're all about verticality. And this tree yeah. is is circular somehow. Exactly. And that that's a, you know, that begins to come into a very interesting aspect of the tree and that's its containing quality. I mean, all trees essentially are surfaces. All trees all trees are really about surface. They they all they're all open to a surface. They're all open to the world around them. They are they're always moving out. Their growth is oriented outward, um, apart from obviously the roots. But the yew tree is very very different in that respect. Its growth is oriented is oriented in some ways inward. So so its gesture is is to contain, and mm. and this this would have been seen by the ancient uh, and venerated by the the ancient inhabitants of of Europe, uh, particularly where the where the where the tree most um, in this particular way, grew most prevalently. And um, when one looks at the, um, the place names, particularly of Ireland and Scotland and England and Wales, uh, I did a, I've done a lot of research on this now over the years, and the place names, there's, there's a, a myriad of place names which contain the word for the yew tree within them. So many, it's staggering. So, so the more research I've done, the more I've realized that this tree at one time was absolutely widespread across northern Europe, and it was a very, very important part of, 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 of culture, of, of ritual, of community, um, and of, of magical practice. And um, it was wiped out, almost completely wiped out. So something in our history got eradicated, something in our heritage, in a way, um, got... Um, was, was eradicated almost completely. Well, and thank goodness for you, not completely. Thank goodness for me, there are, there are a few of them left. There's very, very few that actually gesture the way the, the yew tree that I was involved with gesture, which is to, to grow back into the earth and contain. There's actually two in the area that I lived in Scotland on a, in a kind of alignment. Um, and they're actually not far from, one of them is not far from Rosalind. Rosalind Chapel too, which is also to some extent historically connected with the yew tree. So the more you tease open the yew tree, um, the more doorways you find into our past and into the into the the um, alchemical traditions and further back. It's 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 incredible story waiting to be told um, and a reclamation, I think, of of some some great healing um, potential and practices that we lost. Well, so tell us some about your experience with the tree and, and kind of how that transformed you. Um, and then hopefully that will sort of should merge into the, um, the healing form, the, the embry- embryological ideas. I mean, don't they all kind of weave together? 
Oh, very much so. Very much. It's a, it's okay. a really, um, it's a big story. <laughs> but, um, um, well, the, the, but you sat for a long time under that tree. Yes. I mean, I, I was there for, um, for 10 years um, because I lived so close to it that I was able to go there for, uh, for prolonged periods of time, sometimes for large chunks of the night for hours on, at a time. And I was able to be there pretty much, unless I was you know, taken away somewhere, pretty much every day. Um, and it was, um, so I had a chance to be there for this really long time. Uh, which was very important for my for my healing. Uh, which really, which really, I could I, now when I look back, I can break it up into in different ways depending on how my interpretations. I mean, one's interpretation changes as you know, as you as you as you gain more more knowledge and more understanding of your experiences, your interpretation changes. So the story continues to unfold for me, and it continues to deepen. Um, but there's essentially three phases, and the first phase was really was really just a uh, you know, a sense of just this incredible sense of um, um, being almost turned inside out. I think would be the best way to describe it. There was, there was, it was almost as though the the forces on my body that had come from the from the sense of compression and uh, from the, the initial encounter with the spirit in the north of Scotland were now kind of reversing themselves. And it was, I would often feel that I was being the tree was containing and holding a lot of those experiences and transforming them. So I would often feel like my body would be expanded beyond, beyond imagination. So I feel like almost like my blood was being stretched out of my body and my, my blood cells or my organ of blood was being stretched and drawn and pulled as far as you can possibly imagine. It's very hard to imagine that, um, that, but almost as though I had this, the blood was on the outside of my body or that, my bone would suddenly disappear, which is a very classic shamanic um, um, sensation. Or my skin would suddenly expand to, to encompass the entire inside of the tree. And these were painful experiences. And I would often be accompanied by seizures, um, sort of violent shaking, seizures that would last for quite a while. And then I would be exhausted and probably sleep for several hours under the tree, just in a heap. Um, and there would often, be, would often be compression too, like pushed into the ground, um, but a lot of expansion into the space and a lot of um, decompression was that. So my body began to kind of almost expand and decompress and um, it felt off almost at times that I was touching beyond, uh, many times beyond, beyond these dimensions with my actual visceral self. So like my blood was suddenly in another dimension. It was a very, it's very hard to, to, to kind of give an explanation in words of what it might feel like to have your sort of your fluid of your body being touching another dimension um, mm-hmm. and being altered by that dimension, being changed and then returning. There was a lot of circulatory kind of quality to my initiation. It's that sense of of being drawn away, way out, and kind of circulating back, uh, which is profoundly embryonic, um, as I have discovered in my in my studies. Um, and so, then, what was the next phase? The next phase was 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 more of a kind of a uh, there was more of a sense of um, imagery is not quite the right word, but more sort of uh, beginning to have more vision under the under the tree, seeing seeing personages, seeing um, particular rituals unfolding that took place under the tree, um, having 
having myself participate in those in those rituals, being actually being actually involved and seeing myself being involved in, in a quite a sort of long drawn out ritual with with some quite interesting looking uh, characters that I've done some research about too, and have made some quite interesting discoveries. Um, and um, that was really the second phase was a sense of just of more vision and participation in something um, not happening in this time. Um, right. Not necessarily in the past either, but there was a quality of the, that this was something that had aspects could occur in the past. It was like a poly, there's kind of a polytemporal quality to this, like it was happening simultaneously in different time streams. Yeah, sounds like um, it was just sort of out of time. Out of time, yeah. yeah. Aspects that appeared old and a very powerful, very amazingly uh, rich, what I would say, originally what I thought was an Egyptian theme to, to everything, in terms of the quality of dress and the quality of of, of um, detail that I was seeing. Um, and at first I thought, why would there be, why on earth would there be this Egyptian theme happening in Scotland? But, um, you know, again, you know, one realizes uh, later on, not to get too way out here, but there's been all kinds of Egyptian finds in Ireland, um, you know, mummies in, in, you know, found in, in, uh, in um, Irish tombs and um, all kinds of um, fair-haired pharaohs found in, found in Egypt. So, so all sorts of connections between the, the Druids and uh, or the earlier form of the Druids and the, um, the, the religion and the religion, the practices in, in ancient mm-hmm. Egypt, which is a whole, probably a whole other conversation. But um, <laughs> Um, and and there, there's a piece to that about about the history of the north, and um, which which at some later date maybe we could we could look into, which would date the yew trees to thousands of years older than even um, I have realised. So mm. there's a whole other piece there that I'm currently working wow. with, and we'll be writing about at some point in the near future. Um, okay, so and so then phase three. Phase three was was more of a sense of that learning to to kind of there was a quality of. Uh, Starting to work with my hands and with a sort of quality of light tendrils that began to come into the space of the tree. Um, light tendrils had appeared earlier, but I began to work with them more at will. There was a sense of working with this kind of light under the tree. So I would be able to kind of um, shape my hands in a certain way and work with this kind of quality of, of a sort of a light that was like a fluid and could feel that. When I put my hands on my own body, I could feel this kind of sense of um, flowing and uh, changing this whole fluidity and movement within my body and this kind of light, inner light almost um, and that was that was almost like I was being taught um, this kind of technique of healing um, with my hands and uh, that was to lead me later into the into my other side of, of things which is into the into the, the biodynamic craniosacral work which is a whole a whole different thing but is an avenue and a way to be able to to work with some of these some of these skills in a more sort of conventional setting. So, this is a bit of an odd question, but the the this sort of fluid light energy, for lack of a better word, once again English problematic. What what, what did you have a sense of where it originated? Was it coming out of you, out of the tree? It was. It was. It was not. It's hard to say. It wasn't really necessarily either. It was kind of coming out of a middle place that involved both of those. It involved mm-hmm. me and it involved the tree, but it was coming out of somewhere else. It was. It was. It was as though that these two components were necessary in order for this 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 um, 
this healing to emerge. It wasn't really something that was about about some power that or, or energy that I had. It, it mm-hmm. was something that was passing through me that I was learning to work with. Yeah. So, well, I'm asking only because um, with the the San or the the Kung the Bush people, basically, mm-hmm. they they are unique in that they they see the energy which is considered non-ordinary but that they bring it up through dance yes but they describe it similarly as this kind of liquid light um yes i I don't know it just struck me interesting that uh relationship but that that sense of it's not its origin is not purely of the spirit world or of the person but that the person can can draw it up and basically get it to move through their body and then into their hands where they can work with it through dancing. Absolutely. And I think that there was, there was a quality of movement. I was sometimes, sometimes um, sort of pushed to move by the, by the light. So I, I would kind of make these movements almost like kind of Tai Chi movements almost. Mm-hmm. And it would be almost like a dance with the light. But I think, you know, it's interesting you, you, you're, you're uh, making these comparisons because, of course, in, you know, in, in Chinese... Um, what they have now, these what they, what they have called embryonic breathing, um, which is that again a way of, of of harnessing that kind of that kind of um, liquid light, and also some of our own sort of well, well some of the Western um, alchemical traditions about working with this um, this inner elixir, you know, this inner elixir that was was able to be kind of found in the midline of the body in this kind of sacred axis and. Even even when they were beginning to understand and do dissections, you know, they were talking about the third ventricle, the middle of the brain, and the pineal gland, the pituitary gland later on. So, so, and you know, even in the Western traditions, there's a, there's a sense of, of of this elixir, this inner elixir, this inner light hmm. um, as a healing energy. So, um, when you look into alchemical texts, you see it everywhere. Um, so, um, so the stage for me there was, in a sense, was learning to kind of use that and learning to harness that as a healing force. Um, mm-hmm. And that required a lot of, a lot of work with myself um, to, and, you know, to kind of be able to manage myself around this. And, um, you know, now it's, it's, it's less of a very pointed hand thing with me. It's much more of a, it's much more of a way of just being in relationship with somebody in a healing space. Um, mm-hmm. I still use my hands, but there's, there's, there's a lot of just about how you hold a space and how you manage that, manage that space. Yeah. Mm. And so it sounds to me like during this time, the tree, the tree was the space. The tree taught you how to hold space. The tree did, and I think that was one of its functions in ancient times too, was that it was able to, it was something that was recognized as doing this, but it wasn't just something that was used to do that. It was something that participated and. Its mm-hmm. very being was involved in that. I think that was the gift of the tree. That's one of the gifts of the yew tree. Um, it's hard for people to imagine a tree as a sentient being who is somehow connected to us in very profound ways. But you look through the history of the yew tree, and it's always been connected to to the actions of men and the actions, mm-hmm. of, actions of mankind, whether it's been through warfare or whether it's been through healing. Whatever the face of the face of humanity has been at that time, the, the yew tree is to some extent, reflected that because it's been pressed into service by humanity. And, you know, now we're seeing it coming back as a, as, as a, as a healing force, albeit, albeit through, through a scientific lens, mm-hmm. uh, for, to, for the most part, through, through the, the cancer cure. Um, but I, I obviously found it in a very different way that, um, 
the, the, you know, that I am you know, attempting to kind of communicate in, uh, in writing and in workshops over these last few years. So, Michael, you have been such a generous gift. We have only about five minutes left oh, or so. I know. That's <laughs> amazing. So I'm wondering, so what kind of last piece of this would you like to share? Um, it's just, it feels like we need to go on for about four more hours, but we can't today. Maybe we will another day. But um, Yes. Yeah, no, it's been really... What, what, do you, what shall we tie this to, to... Um, well, you, you're, 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 I think your theme around that you've been exploring around around the, um, the initiations that transform us in our in, in our lives, and I think you've talked about shamanism as a as a as a metaphor to understand that. And I think I would add to that 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 there's a quality that I think there's a call for us in the sham and then working in this in this way to 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 reexamine as you're doing with your with your um, with your interviews is reexamine what exactly. Also, what exactly shamanism um, is and can be, and um, for me, there's been a really fascinating um, discovery of working with the metaphor of the human embryo, um, in a sense of something that is that is um, provides with a provides us with a, a symbol of original original wholeness, something that is that is that is that is whole and complete in itself, which which we see in science through stem cells and things like that. But um, my sense is that the the symbol of the embryo was is a really a shamanic symbol to some extent. Embryology is no new thing, and that there was a science of embryology to some extent. There was a practice which I've called spiritual embryology, or and other people have too, uh, kind of mystic physiology, which Mircea Eliade talks about. There's a there was a practice that was essentially embryonic, um, practiced in the West, um, practiced in in Britain, practiced in Northern Europe. Which was essentially a form of a form of an em, a form of embryology as healing. They knew that in order to get healed, and in order to pass through initiations, and in order to create these transformations, that there was a way of working with that original wholeness. That was a way of coming back to the beginning, not in a, a regressed way, but in a, in a way of, of healing, of finding the the, the inherent healing in in this um, in this almost in this um, act of, not so much the act of conception, but in the dynamics of conception and of the energy of wholeness at the beginning of life. And they were connecting that with the, with the, with the birth of the, of, of the cosmos, in a sense. So, so I think we've lost this sense of uh, creation mythology that, that the embryo represented, not in, not in the way we see it now, but in more of a, more of a sort of visceral, experiential sense. And uh, certainly my experiences under the tree really were fundamentally exactly what an embryo, human embryo does the first four weeks of existence in order to bring itself into form. It was uncanny. Um, so my work has been really to look at to look at shamanic initiation as an embryonic process that um, I'm trying to communicate in a sense as a in a way of looking at um, looking at experiencing our own our own embryo as a as a way of returning and working with our own our own wholeness as, as unique individuals and helping us to be as healthy as, and as whole as we can be. It's um, giving me a new way. I have a, a, a Qigong form, and one of, the, one of the archetypal pieces, and there's ten archetypal pieces, and one of them is exactly what you're talking about, is mm-hmm. going, going back to the beginning. Yes. Again, not from a regressed way, but from a completion of the circle. Absolutely, and, there's, and there's, in a sense, there's nothing new about this. It's been known for 
thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There's 150 texts texts of um, Chinese um, embryonic breathing that have been translated over the last few years mm. that are available now to look at. So there's nothing new about this, but we had this, and this was a this was a practice that was known about, connected to the yew tree, um, and, and known about by druids, connected to that in in the, in the British Isles um, thousands of years ago. That has, has that was lost. Um, so there's a Western quality to that. That um, so we have our the traditions in the West that uh, have, have absolutely been, as you know, been obliterated. And this is one of them. Well, Michael, thank you so much. I think we have to probably begin to wrap things up, and I do want to let people know how to get a hold of you. And there are two, at least two pieces of literature, right? I mean, they can get the Soul Companions book by Karen Sawyer. Yes. And I've checked. You all can even get it here in the States at Powell's.com, which oh. I always send everybody to this amazing bookstore here in Portland. Okay. Um, because Amazon.com still has my price wrong on my book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can also find um, an article in that amazing publication, um, Sacred Hoop, and it was in issue 63, if anybody wants to go back and buy a back issue. Um, yeah. And that's... Um, I think it's just sacredhoop.com, .org. .org. I think so. There's some great pictures of the U in that. Some great there photographs. Are excellent pictures of the U. I'm actually looking at them right now. Now, to contact Michael, you can um, go to ushamanism.com, which is Y-E-W, shamanism.com. And this is your images and ideas and things about, largely about what we've been talking about for most of this. But yeah. then there's also um, a second website, Sacred U Institute, which is more oriented towards what you've been talking about here at the end, right? The embryological idea of healing here and that connection with the craniosacral therapy. Did I get that yeah. right? Yes, and that, that's, that, that's the kind of, uh, that website is, is, in, is in a process of being developed. It's, it's, avail- it's there, but it's, it's still in its rudimentary form, but it's still information there. That is right, and that people can get to you through the ushamanism.com. They can just go to the contact piece and email you from there, right? Yes, my emails are, are on the website, so I would be very happy to respond to any, any questions and communication that people have. And, the, and, and also on that site, of course, are lists of your, your events and your workshops and how people can get to that if they feel called, yes? Yes, I have workshops right through to the rest of the year, um, and people can look and see if any of them are close to them. Great. Michael, thank you so much for being with us here today. We may have to have a, a, another show to talk about more of this, um, maybe specifically about the embryological piece. Um, but for now, we need to give thanks to you. Thank you so much for sharing your amazing journey with us. Thank you so and much for having th- me. Yes. And we give thanks to the ancestors for being with us here today, for circling round, for the earth below, the sky above, and for the heart that unites us all. Thanks to all those of you who donate to make the show possible. And um, just may you take this information with you and uh, may it open your eyes to the trees around you. (laughs) They have ever so much to teach us. Remember, from a shamanic perspective, it is the plants that are the top of the consciousness food chain. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Christina. All right, everybody, have a great week. <laughs>